Paul, then you know that we've started studying through 1 Timothy not so many weeks ago, a few months ago. We're taking our time as we go. We're now into chapter number 2. The very beginning verses, we, we've discussed these, studied these last week. I'll read this for you now. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, uh, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, on order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And that's where we left off last week. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Just remember, oh, by the way, there were a number of people that wanted me to send them a copy of the prayer that we prayed for the president in the service last week. It is printed in the bulletin on the front page. So there it is for you. Uh, And just remember, we, we were talking about this is a very important aspect to our conversation this morning. Okay. And that is that in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul urges that these, these things be, these prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Okay. I want to challenge us this idea, this morning, with the idea that uh, we cannot use the Bible as this big index thing that, that when we have a, a point to prove, all we have to do is go through the Bible and just look for a particular verse that happens to fit what we think. It needs to be saying, and then we apply it. And let me tell you, this is typically what people do. We do it over and over again. We already have preconceived notions in our mind what the Bible should say and what it teaches about this, that, and the other. And it's very easy for us to use it, just like this little proof text book that we go to to prove to everybody our opinion, why our opinion about particular things is right and why other people's happens to be wrong. Let me tell you guys, that is abuse of Scripture. I mean, it really is. We're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. We all do it all the time. But let me tell you, it is abusing the Bible. Because context determines meaning. And so what I'm telling you is this, is that we always have to keep the words in context. Because it's only by keeping them in context that we can actually come to a right and true understanding of what the meaning is. Today, this is a very good example of what we're talking about. The average person, when they're reading through verse here, when they come to the end of it, it says, on behalf of all men. They read that as if God is is saying through Paul, this edict, that the responsibility of the church is to pray for absolutely every single human being who ever breathes air. 
Now let me ask you this. Do you think that is, would that be a worthy goal? To sit at doing that? To pray for everybody? I think probably most of you would agree to that. But let me ask you something. Is it a reasonable goal to think that we will ever achieve it? What we would say is this. It's an impossibility that we will ever achieve that. So what we need to understand here is this, is that prayer needs to be priority one, like we talked about last week. It needs to think that there's a preeminence to prayer that precedes everything else. And we need to pray diligently all the time for all sorts of people, not just men. Okay, for all sorts of people. And I'm talking about in such a manner that we cross racial barriers, in such a manner that we, we cross social barriers, in such a manner that we, we break down every single wall that humankind would erect between people. But at the same time, we understand that, that all men is not to be taken absolutely literally. Let me ask you something. When you say all, do you always mean exactly all? Absolutely all. Very often what you're going to find is this, is, is that when you say all, you're really just saying basically a whole lot of people or just about everybody or something along those lines and not absolutely every, every single one. Let me tell you something. The Bible speaks like we do in a sense, and we need to take the language that it gives us, and we need to understand the Greek word here that is translated as all is pause, and it can mean absolutely everyone. But let me tell you something. In the Bible, more often than not, it doesn't. It very often means a great many or maybe the majority Otherwise, you have things like this. John the Baptist going out, and he's preaching, and he's baptizing people. There are places in the Bible, in the Gospels, that talk about how all of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to John the Baptist to be baptized. Did everybody do that? Do you think that everybody in Jerusalem and everybody in the whole land of Judea went and was baptized by John the Baptist? answer is no. Lots of people did, but lots of people didn't. I'm setting you up for something. You need to understand that. (laughs) And we talked about how these prayers very often, and and, and one of the things that help us understand it's not talking about absolutely everybody, is this is he identifies particular groups of people that, that we need to focus on for the kings and all of those people in authority. She has a little bit of a different light when you add that next verse in there, right? And remember, we talked about the reason he gives here was really kind of surprising, and that is we pray for those in authority over us that we would have a good, so, so we would have a good and tranquil life. And we said this, if we're where we are right now, if we're not praying, if we're not praying for the people in authority over us, we've got no room for griping. None.
And here we are. This is again acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. That prayer that we that prayer that we prayed last week in the worship service, let me tell you something. It was not something that God merely accepted. It was something that actually pleased him. It brought pleasure to him. Now, do you want to bring pleasure to God? Probably one of the most helpful things in us doing that is to understand what things really bring pleasure to him. And what I'm telling you, you didn't just accept that prayer last Sunday as we were praying it. He took great pleasure in it. He, he got joy and delight out of it. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I just want to bring pleasure to people and the people around me. I don't always do that. Lord, can tell you that. Do you understand that as we grow as Christians, that our focus really, truly changes? It stops being about us. It's more about them. But even more so, it's more about him. It's been great having the kids, grandkids here with us. And one of the reasons is this, is they just say they, they do little things, but, you know, they just bring such delight to us as we, we, we listen to what they say and we see what they do uh, and all of that. And we just need to remember this sometimes, that God looks upon us in the same sense. He sees what we're doing. He hears what we're saying. And it just delights the mess out of him. Guys, it's a whole lot easier to curse those who stand against us than it is to pray for them. But let me tell you, just to stand with an angry fist and do nothing but curse is the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Christ. Scripture regularly encourages us to be uh, in subjection to the governing authorities, which might surprise some people. Since we live in a land that was established based upon a revolt, a rebellion against the governing authorities, right? Sometimes I don't think that we understand that the founding fathers of, 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 um, of the United States who were Christians pretty much to the man, God-fearing people to the man, that they had to be convinced from Scripture that what they were doing was legitimate.
But just think about all the blessings that you and I have because of what they did and the sacrifices they made and, you know, stepping off into the unknown like they were willing to do. Let's not take those things for granted. But Jesus says this, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul says in Romans 13, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. Peter says something very similar. Submit yourselves to the, for, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one who is in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Great division in our land today, right? And we see it as, as a division between the left and the right. But let me tell you, Christians should stand out beyond both, right? So did you pray for the president this week? Did you pray for the governor? Pray for the senators? Prayer, my friends, is one of the few weapons that we have. But it's a very effective weapon. When it's done rightly, for the right reasons, for the right heart. Pray for those people. Because it's good and pleasing in the presence of our God, our Savior. You've heard me say this before. I said this just recently, and that is this, that if one of the reasons I preach through books in the Bible is because there are, there are texts all over the place that if I was sitting down and deciding whether I wanted to preach that on Sunday or not, there are things I would avoid like the plague. I can't tell you how many sermons I've preached over the years on texts that, that if, if I were not bound to this idea of preaching through books, I would have skipped right over them. And that's because some things that the Bible says are hard, or they come across, or they sound hard to us. Also, there are times when people completely misunderstand things. And what I want to talk about this morning is this. This is verse number four, who desires all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. Now, we're reformed. And some of you know what that means and some of you don't. But ultimately, we believe this. We believe that God is absolutely sovereign in all things, including matters of salvation. That people who are saved are saved by God in absolutely every aspect of that saving. 
We believe that man is so fallen, so deeply into sin, that if it were not for God sending forth his spirit and, and beginning through a new birth, the transformation of our souls, not one single person ever would choose Jesus Christ. Nobody would. That salvation is initiated by God, and it is, it is, it is, it is completed by God. He's the one that has the power. He's the one that has the ability. When you understand that, you see things like verse 4 in a different light. Who desires all men to be saved. Who desires, who wishes, who wants all legitimate translations of that. Okay, so when you look at that at face value, what is it saying? That it's the desire of God that absolutely every single person be saved. This is a proof text that people very often use to try to disprove salvation by grace and grace alone. Like I said before, I've repeatedly warned you not to just take a few words here, there, and yonder and read all kinds of things into them. They were not necessarily intended to say. So, here you have it, this verse. It tells us that Reformed people like us were wrong and everybody else is right. That there is a God who is sitting in heaven right now that is desiring, wishing, almost pleading with his heart that every person on the face of this planet in every age would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but he just can't make it happen. In other words, he's sovereign in absolutely everything but one thing. Salvation. I don't think we want to understand it to mean what so many people do. Now let me tell you why. First of all, You hear people all the time talking about man's free will. That Jesus has done everything necessary to to save people. And at this point, it is absolutely, totally up to the free will of every single person as to whether they choose or not choose salvation. The strange thing, guys, is this, is the phrase free will of man doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere, nowhere. It's, 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 It's unknown in Scripture. What the scripture does over and over again is describes our nature, our sin nature, as being imprisoned. A slave. We're slaves to sin. We can't do anything but sin. Now, 
Jesus says this, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden. To set free those who are enslaved. To, re- to release the captives from the prison of sin. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were what? Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. There's man's will. But of God. In other words, unless God first breathes spiritual life into us, not one single person would ever choose Jesus Christ. Ever. Jesus would have come into the world and lived and done all the stuff that he did and not saved anybody, not one single person, with surety. What I'm telling you is this, is if Jesus came and it's all completely up to the free will of mankind without God doing anything at all, there's a possibility that Jesus wouldn't have saved a single person. So man's will is enslaved to sin. And that's everybody's, not just the people that are worse than I am. It's everybody, enslaved, imprisoned. Like we said before, secondly, the Bible teaches us very clearly, if you believe, you believe because you were born again. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He was a Pharisee, and he didn't want anybody. That's why he goes at night, because he didn't want any of his cronies to know he went to Jesus. And what he said to him is, we know that you come for God, because if you you didn't, you couldn't do the things that you do. But then they get in this conversation, and he tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. He's got this idea that, you know, he's saying that you've got to get back in your mother's womb and be born all night. He says, no, 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 no. Truly, truly, I say to you, lesson one is born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In the prologue of John, we, we read these words, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So it sounds like there were people who just received Even those who believed in his name, who were what? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God's will. And 
In other words, God must breathe spiritual life into us, otherwise we all stay dead as a doornail. Like we said before, another thing here is this, is we see all here and we think absolutely. All does not always mean absolutely. Sometimes it does and sometimes it just doesn't. If that's true, if all always means all, then, then you have things like this. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was with him. When he heard the testimony of Jesus, that, that Herod was troubled, and not only him, but absolutely every person in all of Judea was troubled too. Do we believe that? No. You see, sometimes... This particular word, all, or pause in Greek, is better understood to mean a great many, a great multitude, not absolutely every single one, right? Fourthly, to understand that God is sitting in heaven, they're just sitting there wishing, desiring, wanting more than anything else for all people to come to salvation, but he just can't make it happen. It means to deny absolutely some things that are very, very clearly taught in Scripture. Okay. Some of those things we've already talked about already. For instance, it requires that we completely ignore or try to explain away other passages that talk about election and predestination and etc., which are all over the Bible, by the way. They're not just one or two obscure verses crammed here in, in very remote and unknown places of Scripture. For whom he foreknow, he predestined. Let me tell you guys, that he predestined is what it sounds like. That's exactly what it means. He predetermined. He predestined also to become conformed to the image of his son. And whom he predestined, these he called, and these he called, he also justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. Who's doing the doing? God's doing the doing. I was having a conversation one time with a pastor, and let me tell you, I believe the guy is saved. I believe he loves the Lord Jesus with all of his heart. But what bothered me more than anything else, I don't think he knows his Bible very well. Because he was always ribbing on me for being a Calvinist or being Reformed, and I never even said a word to him about it. He would say you know, snide comments about it very on a very regular basis, kind of looking down his nose at me in a sense, and I never, ever responded to anything until we were in our office, my office one day, and we have this conversation, and he brings up Romans 8. And he explains it a way that so many, so many, I've heard other people do it, and that is this, is that God, what he did was he, because of his foreknowledge, he looked back, in, in history, and he looked at Joan Watson, and he, and he knew that she would believe, and so then he 
wrote our name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, it's based upon God's pre-knowing those who will come to faith. But what I want you to understand something, that's not what's being taught in Romans. What's being taught there in Romans 8 is this, is you believe because God pre-knew that you were that you would be a believer because he was going to make you into one. I mean, what foreknowledge is basically is you are because I knew that you would be. And besides that, let me tell you, this is a, this is a, this is a seminary trained pastor and all that. I said, what do you do with Romans 9 in light of that? Let me tell you, it's like he'd never even read Romans 9. Because let me tell you, if you read Romans 9, you can't understand it in any way other than God predetermined all of it. And he uses Jacob and Esau as an example. And another thing, too, is this. If you see the phrase, all men used in very close proximity to more than once, you think in one place that you, you should understand it to mean everybody, you know, in other words, doesn't it sound like you say all men here, it means the same all men if you use it two sentences later? In other words, it doesn't mean one thing, it doesn't mean everybody in one place, and then you use it two sentences later, and it means now just a special group of people or something like that. What do you think about that? I tell you what bothers me more than anything else is what it says about the sovereignty of God. Bothers me. Because either God is, you've heard me say this before, either God is sovereign in absolutely everything or he is sovereign in absolutely nothing. I've had conversations with people about this. What do you do with the sovereignty? There's something that says, well, God is sovereign in this. He leaves it totally up to the free will of man. Now, let me ask you something. Is that real sovereignty? That's a cop-out. People who do not believe these, these very clear doctrines in Scripture, they don't believe in a sovereign God. So is God truly sovereign in all things? I mean, you understand one of the things that's going on, if you understand it in the light of the way that a lot of people read this, that God really wants to save so-and-so, but it's just not going to happen. He wants to. He desires to. Is that a sovereign God? Again, guys, Scripture has determined our understanding of everything, not our sinful nature. 
Because let me tell you, our sinful nature is still active, and it still will encourage you to read all kinds of things into things that are not intended to be taken that way. Now let me ask you this. Do you know who's going to come to salvation? So what, what your job as a believer, when you do evangelism, what your job is is, is to say, well, you know what, I think so-and-so was, is going to come to faith. Or I think so-and-so would make such a great believer. They're always such a nice person. They, they would make a perfect Christian. So that's the person I'm going to share the gospel with. And then I forget about all the, the, the other people who, in my eyes, are really, really bad people and all of that. Is that what God wants us to do? You ought to be able to look at yourself, as we talked about in the, the first chapter of, of 1 Timothy, and, and the thing you should wonder about most, if you're saved, to, to wonder is the fact that God saved you. Because if you know what someone's dark heart looks like, you ought to know yours better than you know anybody else's. And like we said before, we should all be able to echo I am the chief among sinners. I am, not Paul. I would get in an argument with Paul. You think you are, buddy? I'm worse than you are. And let me tell you, if you understand your sin like you really should, as the Bible describes it, you can come to no other conclusion. And that is, I've come to salvation for one reason, and that is because God has saved me. Completely, absolutely. It's not because of anything that I've done. It's not because I'm better than other people. Because let me tell you, if you believe this, if you believe that it's totally up to individuals without any input from God whatsoever, you believe that there's something in some people that's better than other people. There's an island of righteousness in there, an island of righteousness that would cause that person to choose God when everything else in them says, don't do it. But again, doesn't it bother you when you get this picture of God, sovereign God, almighty God, depending upon the whims of people to accomplish his Will. Don't you think that there's a little bit of making God into our image going in on that? Now let me just warn you about this. These things are so clearly taught in Scripture. But one of the things that's also made very clear there is you have not got one bit of ground to boast about if you believe. None. No ground at all. Nothing to boast about. Let me just tell you this. If you're saved, it's because God has taken very great and special delight in you. The 
You may not see it. You may not urge it. Let me tell you, I hope you don't see it and think you see it and hope you understand it. But he takes delight in you when they were really, from a human's perspective, there's absolutely nothing in you to delight about. Nothing. At all. And he chooses to love you nonetheless. That's the love of God, guys. His love is not like our love. Let's face it. The people we love the most are the people that are easy to love. There's reason to love them. So some things to think about today, maybe. Just remember this, guys, that grace, best defined, grace means un, totally, completely, absolutely unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Gospel is something. No one in this room in, a, in, a, in all of eternity would have ever come up with something like the gospel. I mean, it's one of those things that, that you know it as a God thing because no one would ever come up with something like this. That God would send his son that he's known eternally. And let me tell you, if you want to know what real love is, it's a love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is pure. It is absolute. It is total. It is consuming. But rather than keeping that love to themselves, They share it with us. And they give us the opportunity to love other people in a way that we never possibly could apart from it. Well, think about it. You may think I am just totally wrong. Let me tell you, there's a definite possibility. But if you're going to convince me I'm wrong, you're going to have to use this to do it. Not your sinful nature. Not what sounds right to you, what sounds good to you. This and only this. And let me tell you something. You can't do it. It's just not there. Okay. See why?